If I say the name Christopher Reeve, you know that that is Superman, the first. Did you hear the ooh? Did you notice it was female voices? <laughs> this is Christopher Reeve who made the first Superman movie. I think it was in the late 70s. He was in his early 20s when he made it. At the time, it was the most expensive movie that had ever been made. And Christopher Reeve was the kind of guy, if, if he was in your high school and you were interested in a girl and she met him, it's over for you. <laughs> he was six foot two, he, ended, he attended Cornell, from Cornell he went to Juilliard, just a stud. When he tried out for Superman, he was six foot two and 188 pounds, and they said we, he had a captivating screen test, and they gave him the job. He said, you're a little skinny, so we'd like you to wear a muscle suit under whatever this costume is called. And he refused. And he went to work instead with a personal trainer and got himself up to six foot two and 212 pounds. Packed on over 20 pounds of muscles in two months of training, and then it was really unfair to all the other men. <laughs> it's the kind of guy you take your wife or your girlfriend to see the movie, and he comes on screen for the first time, and you turn and you say, you know, I'm sitting right here. <laughs> it's that kind of guy. So in 1995, when, of course, this kind of pinnacle of what a guy hopes he can be, had taken up horseback riding, had become a competitive jumper because of another movie he had made. He had gotten acquainted with horses and overcame even an allergy to them, become a very proficient horseman. His horse refused to jump, and Superman was thrown over the horse and got his hands tangled in the reins somehow, so all of that amazing physical development, was completely unable to help him, and he landed on his head, suffered a catastrophic spinal injury, and for the rest of his life until his death, was confined to a wheelchair and had to have the help of a portable ventilator. Superman died, of all things, because of an infection. A bed sore had come up on his body, and they gave him an antibiotic for it, apparently, and he had an adverse reaction to it. And Superman, who was first crippled, then died. I don't know if you remember when it happened. It was, I wasn't the biggest comic book fan in the world, but to know that Superman was then crippled, and I, just an ordinary guy, it didn't make anybody ooh and awe, was walking around, and then to hear that he had died, just really kind of shook you a little bit. He's the most notable quadriplegic probably that America has ever met. I met someone who was paralyzed from the neck down for the first time when I was just in high school. One of my high school friends had a father who had spent a lot of time in the ocean, and like it happens sometimes in the ocean, even men who know it quite well can get caught unawares. He got caught in a huge wave, and it dumped him on his head. 
and he couldn't move anything but his head. I got used to it, but as a 16, 17-year-old kid going over there for lunch all the time and watching this very proficient, very, frankly, wealthy, intelligent businessman have to be spoon-fed every single bite by his wife, and then letting my imagination run a little bit and considering what the day-to-day care of this man, the indignity that, was, that marked his whole life because of one bad instant in the Pacific Ocean off the shores of Mexico. Incredible. So paralysis from the time I was about 16, and maybe that's why I was so stunned when Superman was crippled and later died, it kind of went right up at the top of my list of things I hope and pray I never have to deal with. Jesus met a man in this sort of condition. His doctors had been able, certainly, to do even less for him than Reeves' doctors were able to do for Superman. I want you to meet him. We find his story in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verse 17. The fame of Jesus has been growing, and understandably so. He commands demons and disease. He preaches the Word of God with authority. No one has ever seen or heard anything like it. And Luke drops into the middle of his ministry in verse 17, telling us this. On one of these days, as he, Jesus, was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with them to heal. And this is the first time Luke tells you about the Pharisees. They weren't an official group. They're what a good scholar calls a pressure group. We understand that in America today. Unless you're right in the middle, if your views incline to the right or to the left, you've got a pressure group available to you to put your cause out there. Pressure group are people who bring social and cultural pressure to bear on a situation so that their cause can be defended and upheld. That's who the Pharisees were. They were, of all the observant Jews, they were the strictest group. They had a very important religious belief. They thought they should pay attention to the Word of God, and they had interpreted it and explained it and applied it really to to our ears and our thinking, almost a ridiculous degree of how a Jew was to live in obedience to what Moses had said. On top of the law of God, they had piled on all these human traditions that told you specifically how you were to go through every aspect of your life. They were concerned with things like ritual washing and cleansing so that you were ceremonially pure so that you were acceptable to God. And the reason they were so respected and the reason they were so fervent is their core doctrinal belief was if they could make themselves and the nation observe God's law well enough, that would create a condition where God would finally step in and act. Because the Pharisees, just like every other Jew in Israel, got up every morning knowing that they weren't in charge. The pagan Romans were in charge. And that was a terrible, contemptible thing for any religiously observant person to live under. 
So they saw their ministry, their life, their scrupulous attention to all of these details as literally holding the key to the nation's revival. They thought if they could spread that fervor long enough, God would be pleased with their obedience and come in and drive these pagans away. That's why, you notice, they've come from everywhere to check out what this upstart Jesus is doing. Look again at the detail Luke gives you. They've come, he says, from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. In other words, from every corner of the nation, they're all there. And they're sitting down watching Jesus do His thing, watching Him teach. And the text doesn't say so, but let me tell you. This isn't a happy audience, this is a critical audience. Because almost everything they believe in the way they're living is contrary to what He's teaching. So they're watching and observing. And then this happened. Behold, some men were bringing in on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. You have any friends like that? You know, I, it's, it's an argument in our house, who's going to go get the milk? Whoever these guys were, I don't know if they're friends or family, but they are devoted people. They've heard something about Jesus that gives them the absolute certainty, if only we can get our friend in front of Jesus, if we can get Jesus' attention, he'll know exactly what to do. He'll take care of this hopeless situation. And there's a lot of indignity woven into this story. Because this is a guy who's paralyzed in the first century. There's several ways you can be paralyzed. The most common, of course, are these terrible accidents that damage the spine. And things have gotten a lot better with orthopedic injuries, but if you have a fracture like the one that felled Christopher Reeve, there's nothing you can do. Things die, things are severed, they can't be reconnected, the doctors cannot put life back into those vitally important thin little tissues, and you're done. And I don't know how long this man had lived this way, but he is so paralyzed, he has to be carried on a bed. They've probably made some kind of makeshift stretcher, and they're bearing him along, and they come to this house Based on first century customs, it probably wasn't a very big place, and the room is crowded, and people are standing around outside, and I'm sure they tried politely, excuse me, we need to get through, but you know how crowds are. If the crowd's big enough, everyone can absolve themselves of personal responsibility to be nice, right? So they get crowded out, and there's nothing they can do, there's nowhere to turn, so probably using a staircase that went up to the roof of this first century home. They carry him gingerly up the stairs and then start taking the roof apart. You ever had anybody on top of your house on the roof? You notice. I had some dumb friends in high school, and one of them decided it would be a great idea to get, well, let's just say he wasn't thinking clearly. He was under the effects of, of certain substances, and he decided it would be a good idea to climb up on our roof at 2 o'clock in the morning and lower himself down in front of my second-story bedroom window and knock on the window. It's a great prank. Hey! You look out, here's your stupid friend, right? 
My dad had other ideas, like shooting whoever is climbing on his roof at 2 o'clock in the morning. My point is, if someone gets on your roof, even a modern roof made out of concrete the way mine was, you notice. And in this case, men are disassembling the roof and working their way through probably thatch and a layer of mud, and they're taking things apart and making a man-sized hole with a bed big enough to fit him and gingerly lowering him, lowering him down, probably with grass and mud falling in every direction and slowly lowering him down in front of Jesus. Good friends. Little lesson for us along the way, it's not the point of the story. But what happened to this man next happened because his friends cared enough to get him in front of Jesus. We should be friends like that. Come this Christmas, you'll have one of the best opportunities our culture offers to invite people to come to church and hear about Jesus. I hope you'll be friendly to them. I intend to be friendly to my neighbors and everybody I can get close enough to to invite them to come hear about him. So it worked. The roof comes apart. The man is lowered down. He comes right into the midst, right in front of Jesus. And then Jesus does something unexpected. Have you noticed that he does that? It says in verse 20, when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Well, that's surprising. Who mentioned sin? That wasn't the point, right? Why do you think Jesus brought something completely, apparently, out of left field? He's dealing with something that, in everybody's mind and understanding, isn't even the problem. The reason the roof got taken apart and the reason a crippled man was lowered, think about the danger of that. I don't know if they got ropes. I have no idea what they did, but this is quite a amateur engineering project to take a roof apart and lower a crippled man down in front of Jesus. They didn't have scaffolding and they didn't have a crane. This was quite a deal. And Jesus looked up and probably with a smile addressed the crippled man and said, your sins are forgiven. Why? Paralysis is clearly the problem, right? I don't know if you've been around people who are severely paralyzed the way this man was. You can't help but notice. Their bodies necessarily are usually contorted in awkward positions. If they've been paralyzed for any amount of time, atrophy has taken over. And their bodies have withered beneath them. It's obvious what the problem was. And Jesus changes the subject completely from paralysis to sin, and He says to this man, man, your sins are forgiven you. And Luke tells you to help you see the point why He said that. What prompted Jesus to declare to this man that his sins were forgiven? Look in that verse. What, was the, what, what sparked that comment from Jesus? He saw their faith. You know, you ask somebody what faith means and you get 12 different answers. Can I tell you simply what faith is and what it means, at least here? It means trust. 
In this case, it's not a creed, it's not a confession, it's not a document filled with spiritual or even biblical words. It's personal trust. Jesus, through the cascading dirt and the palm fronds, knows what this is all about. He sees the collective faith. He sees the complete personal trust in the, that these men have placed in him. And he says something radical that really would have gotten the religious inspectors going. Man, your sins are forgiven. Well, if you know the story, how'd they take it? Not too well. Look. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they have a point. Those aren't unfair questions. See, sometimes you read the story of Jesus who really walked on earth and lived among us and did the very things that are recorded in this book, so much so that the men who wrote them down to a person were willing to die rather than take back their story. It's historical. It really happened. But the Pharisees and the scribes, they're asking a fair question. Sometimes the fact that it's Jesus, we miss the details and the humanity and the day-to-day ordinary shock that that kind of pronouncement would have created if we would have been there. Here's one way to understand it. You go down to the Huntington Beach Pier this afternoon and start walking up to strangers and engaging them in friendly conversation, and at a time of your choosing, smile warmly, put your hand on their right shoulder and say, friend, good news, I am forgiving your sins today. What's going to happen with you? Very likely, Huntington Beach PD will be there shortly. Make sure that you and everybody else on the pier is safe, right? They know this is scandalous talk. It's, it's blasphemous, in fact. Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Here's the money question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Watch Jesus show them who He is. He does it in two moves. The first is subtle but surprising. The second is outright shocking. But Jesus, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, in other words, He didn't overhear them. They were saying this inside their own heart and mind. They were starting to get troubled. They were thinking along these lines, and Jesus perceived their thoughts. He answered them, why do you question in your hearts? What is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? Well, he asked them, let me ask you, what do you think? It's an interesting question, isn't it? What's easier to say? I'm forgiving your sins or get up out of that bed and walk home? Well, anybody can say anything they please, but I think the point is it's easier to assure someone their sins are forgiven because there's no proof. You can't see anything happening to them. If you're that slightly and wonderfully unbalanced person on the pier walking around telling strangers that their sins are forgiven, who knows, maybe they are. But to tell a man who's paralyzed, who has to be carried like a package up on a rooftop and lowered gingerly in front of Jesus to tell him, rise and walk, well, if you can't do that, that's just cruel and crazy. Walk through a cancer ward and say, 
be healed, be healed, be healed. Walk into a military hospital and see people who's, who've lost limbs and have been crippled and bid them to be well and to run again. That's a much harder proposition. And Jesus said, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In other words, to prove to you that I can forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Yes, indeed. Because that never happens. Earlier this week, I spent a few hours outside a, an orthopedic hospital. And I texted one of the pastors and said, today I feel like an Olympian. Because if you've ever been outside an orthopedic surgery center, there's two kinds of people that I saw going in there. Young, injured athletes who look sad because the season's over. And people who have been so injured and so reduced by injury and by disease that people actually run to help them as soon as they're sighted. All kinds of devices meant to support their body. It's a sad, sad place to be. And that little orthopedic surgery center has three parts. There's a business office where they charge. There's a surgical suite where they cut you open and put things right. And then there's everybody's favorite spot on the first floor, a physical therapy center. Anybody ever had physical therapy? Isn't it fun? Sadists seem to study physical therapy from my, <laughs> my personal experience. Right? God bless you if you do that. I walk straight because of a physical therapist, but man, is that hard work. And it's the very first thing they do. Even with big surgeries like hip surgeries, they shockingly insist on you walking, and it's a long, slow struggle. Jesus didn't do any of that. He said to a man, I presume quadriplegic, get up out of that bed, pick it up, go home, and he did. Probably running on his way home, looking down at his own legs in amazement that withered limbs sustained him and he could feel the joy of the wind running through his hair for the first time probably in a very long time. Why did he do it? Because he was entirely different from everyone else in the room. And he gave a clue to that that would have resonated in the Pharisees' minds and made them feel no better if they didn't believe him in what he told them. If you look carefully in your Bible, it says in verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus went third person. Did you notice? It's not braggadocious, it's purposeful. He called himself by a title. Only people who go third person in our culture are generally athletes and rap stars. <laughs> One of my football team players once said, I love me some me. Okay? Refer to themselves by the third person. Jesus is doing so, but it's not. It's not ostentatious or arrogant. He's giving a biblical descriptor of himself. Did you see what he called himself there in verse 24? He called himself the 
son of man. You know, uh, aren't we all? Well, yes. But these Pharisees, these scribes who knew the Hebrew Scripture so well would have immediately picked up on that. There's a quiet but glorious little description in the prophecy of Daniel in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, that refer to an exalted person who is called simply the Son of Man, who after times of severe persecution is brought into the presence of God. I want, you to, I want to read it to you. Daniel said in, verse, in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, in other words, to God, and was presented before him, and to him, in other words, to the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, pass away in his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See the point? The Pharisee, this religious pressure group, was in the room because they thought they knew the way to bring in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, I'm the one that God promised. I'm the one who appeared in the presence of God and who will bring in an everlasting dominion, a kingdom, receive worship and service from the whole world, and that kingdom will not pass away. They knew exactly what he meant, and he proved that he was that person by telling a crippled man, let's show them. Get up out of that bed, pick it up, and go home. And he did. Why am I telling you all this? So that you'll know fully who Jesus is, so that you'll put your attention in the right place. See, I wonder if the paralyzed man initially was surprised that Jesus addressed his sin rather than his paralysis. What Jesus saw in this group of people was complete faith, complete personal trust in him, and Jesus lovingly, not cruelly, not in a showy way, he lovingly put this man's needs, his most important needs first, because the great trouble in this man's life surprisingly, was not his paralysis. It was the barrier that sin had created between God and himself. And that's your biggest problem and my biggest problem as well. The day-to-day -day reality that we live in a world that was created by God, that we ourselves were personally made by him, and that at a certain time, we don't know when, we shall be called to give an account for the lives that God gave us, that is the single most important issue in all of life. But very few people live like it is. Let's just think a little bit about our own day-to-day -day lives. On a day-to-day -day basis, do you give more thought, energy, worry, and effort to things like paying the bills and raising the kids and getting good grades? Or do you live in the conscious reality that one day God will call you to account for the life He gave you and you better be ready for that meeting? What consumes more of your day-to-day? -day? Can we be honest? The eternal slips from view pretty quickly, doesn't it? The reason for that is whether there is sin in my life that has separated me from God, that is vitally important, but it's not urgent. 
because I don't know when that day may come, and I'm amazingly good at putting off in my own mind the reality of my own encounter with God, I can put that off indefinitely. Most people put it off their whole lives as a pastor, just because I'm a pastor, not because I'm smart. But because I'm a pastor, I've seen that clearly for years because generally people call me when their life is in real trouble. Seldom do I get calls say everything's great. I get calls sometimes at really uncomfortable hours to come quickly because life and the reality of suffering and pain and death has come crashing in and now a person is concerned for themselves or for a loved one. They may not be here much longer. Jesus knew everything about this paralyzed man, so he started with his greatest need, which is the forgiveness of sin. And that is the one thing that Jesus alone can do for people. See, the Pharisees were right to ask that question. They thought Jesus was blasphemous because they knew quite well that only God could forgive sin. So Jesus did this dramatic thing, citing this ancient promise that one called the Son of Man would come because he wanted them to know gentlemen, I am He. I am the one. You can trust me to deal with the greatest issue of all. You can trust me with your eternity. Here's what Jesus is trying to show them. It's simple. Being right with God is as simple or as difficult as trusting Jesus. That's it. Being right with God is as simple or as difficult as is trusting Jesus. So let me ask you before we're done. Do you? See, what started this whole thing going was that some these men collectively put their personal trust in Jesus. Their only struggle was not whether Jesus can take care of this, but whether we can get him to notice. How do we put our friend in front of Jesus? Because as soon as Jesus sees what's going on, we trust that he can take care of everything, and he can. That's what Luke has been showing you for five chapters. There's absolutely nothing in the world that Jesus can't handle. Everything in the created order that he has come into contact with has obeyed him perfectly and obediently. Demons, disease, Everything. You know the only thing resisting him and questioning him and accusing him of blasphemy in these stories? The people he came to save. You see, God so deeply, lovingly, sacrificially wants a personal relationship with you that he insists that you personally place your trust in him. There's always going to be gap. There's always going to be room for trust. The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's the way personal relationships work. If there is no mutual trust, there is no relationship. And Jesus has been strategically, step by step, showing people that He is actually the one that was promised, and He can do everything that God can do because He actually is God in the flesh, which is the point of Christmas. And the only question is whether people will trust Him. All these years that I've been following Jesus since a child, when I first, and it was painful, believe me, even though I was a kid, when I, God finally broke my self-reliance and I realized I could not possibly save myself, and I, with great pain, I remember it well, 
gave up on myself and said, Jesus, if I'm going to be saved, if I'm going to have my sin forgiven, it's got to be you. I can't do this myself. From that moment to this, I've had the forgiveness of my sin, and I've also had a daily struggle whether I trust Him or not. So let me just ask you as personally and directly as possible, do you have assurance that He has forgiven your sins? That's what He can do. Only He can do it. He truly is the promised Son of Man. He's the only one that can forgive your sins. Do you personally trust Him to do it? And if that's the most vital and important question in life, do you have a concern for your friends, for your loved ones, for your children, for the people who are closest to you, that they would receive from Jesus that same assurance? Let me be really personal and really practical. If you're not absolutely certain that Jesus has personally forgiven your sins because you've given up on yourself and you're trusting Him instead, I want to invite you right now to do that this morning. You don't have to come forward. You don't need to know the right words. If you notice in this story, it strikes me, not a word was said apparently by this group. They just took the roof apart and lowered the man. Jesus knew what was in their hearts. He knew what was in the heart of the men. He knew what the paralyzed man believed. He knew what the Pharisees believed. The good news is actually physically present in this room to forgive sins. The only one who will go home is not only healed but forgiven is the people who are trusting in Jesus. So you can do that yourself. And I pray that you will. And then with that conscious awareness that Jesus has already dealt with the greatest, most eternal, most damning problem you will ever face, that you will live in the conscious trust and obedience, and when life gets hard, and when you can't see what He's doing, and you don't know exactly what to do next, at that point, as you trusted Him for forgiveness, you'll trust Him for your day-to-day life. Because truly, friends, believe me, being right with God, walking in fellowship with God, it really is as simple or as tough as trusting Jesus. Let's pray together. Let me speak to you. Maybe I know you. Maybe we've met. Maybe I haven't. It doesn't matter. All this church can do for you, all I can personally do for you is tell you about Jesus, point you to Him. Now I want to personally invite you to trust Him. If you haven't, if you haven't made that certainty, if you haven't made that real and official and personal for yourself, I'm inviting you right now to say, Jesus, I give up on myself. I can't save myself. I have sin in my life. My conscience tells me so. I feel the distance between myself and God. You're the only one who can save me. You're the only one who can bridge that gap. Please do so. Save me right now. I trust you personally to do it. Would you do that now? As we move into the Christmas stories surrounding His birth, you'll see this always happens. He's polarizing. He splits the room. Some believe, some resist. That's going to happen again in this room this morning. He himself said that he would have that effect on people. Some would move to trust him. Others would cringe 
Some would resist, some would flinch, and they would push back and refuse to believe. My invitation to you is to personally trust Him. And if you do, I'd love for you to fill out that card and let us know. And I mentioned the friends. You know, we got this amazing day-to-day opportunity to not only know this Savior, but to tell people about Him. To invite people to worship services where they can hear all about Him. To tell our own stories of how He saved us. To pray for them. To search for those God-given opportunities where we muster up our courage and we name Him and tell people what He's done for us. His man would have been nowhere without his friends who cared enough to go to great trouble and a little social embarrassment to get him to Jesus. I want to be a person like that. That's going to be part of my day-to-day trust in him. So wherever you are, if you're today deciding that you're going to be a disciple of Jesus for the very first time, talk to him right now. He's listening. We're not talking about a concept, an idea, or a cause. He's a person. You can tell him yourself in your own words, Jesus, I give up. I give in. I surrender. Please save me. And if he's already done that, as may be the case for most of you, would you ask him to help you trust him in the day-to-day? The need to trust him never, ever changes. And how sad it is that I'd trust him for forgiveness of sins and not with day-to-day life. Lord, I pray that you would move in this room right now and you'd speak to hearts, change hearts and minds. And for the one or the many who need to trust you, I pray that right now they would make sure they would turn to you, put their faith in you, and receive from you the assurance that you gave this man two millennia ago that you had forgiven his sins. For the rest of us, Lord, that battle, that question never changes. Our struggle is to trust you. Help us do so. In Jesus' name I pray.